To make it in cannabis, first, you must dare to. 12 years ago, MJ BizCon dared to unite the global cannabis community, igniting a movement that continues to thrive. This November 28th through December 1st in Las Vegas, you'll hear incredible stories, see groundbreaking innovations, and forge connections you need to thrive in 2024. And here's the secret. Dime listeners get 10% off with the promo code 23POD10. Don't miss out. Get your tickets at mjbizcon.com. That's mjbizcon.com. A customer, let's say, posts a job, they can require badge. They can require a badge. And then when the candidate applies, they can see if the candidate has the badge. And customers can actually do specific searches. So I could search Bud Tender, Med Badge, Colorado. And I could even go as far to say I want to search for someone with Glow Hub experience, metric experience, and LeapLink experience. And we'll serve up that supply of candidates. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Carson Hummonson, CEO and founder of Banks. Carson, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on today, guys. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing really good. Excited to talk to Carson and, uh, you know, just looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, I'm excited. And I know Carson has current roots on the West Coast, but I think her heart and her origin is more of an East Coast and New York style. So <laughs> Carson, for the record, your alliance, East Coast, West Coast, where would you put yourself? That's actually a hard question. I mean, like, I love living here, but I feel like I relate to the people on the East Coast a little bit more. So I, w- I would say still, I, I would I would still consider myself an East Coaster who just happens to I live in Colorado and I'll probably live in Colorado forever. I love it. Let the record. That's a good answer. I love that. Let the record state though, an East Coaster, she said. So yeah. uh, I think that was a politically uh, unbiased answer. Fair. You know what I mean? That's fair. That's <laughs> well, like there's just it's just a different. It's just a uh, the, the speed. I, I appreciate the speed that the people on the East Coast have, but a lot of people from the East Coast are moving uh, out to the West Coast. So there's definitely a group that move fast out here as well, but they're, they're harder to find. Cool. So for our listeners, Carson, that are a little unfamiliar about you, can you share a little background about you and how you got into the cannabis space? Yes, I'm happy to. So like you mentioned, East Coaster, I'm from Buffalo, New York. I went to St. Lawrence in very upstate New York, about five hours north of Buffalo. Always wanted to be an entrepreneur. So I'd started a bunch of little mini businesses. I, I grew up on a golf course and at night I would go around the golf course and collect the golf balls, clean the golf balls, and then sell them back to the golfers the next day. I would... Take, you know, I'd pick up a bunch of sticks. I would throw the sticks on my neighbor's yards and then write them letters saying that there's sticks in your yard, pay me to pick them up. So, like, I really can't remember a time in my life where I wasn't attempting to start a business. Most of them failed. In college, I did a small student travel company called On Track Adventures. And towards the middle of my senior year, I realized I this this business wasn't going to be the end-all be-all business. I didn't want to be a party planner forever. But I asked the students and the people who had gone on the trips. What industries are you interested in getting jobs in? People started writing back saying the cannabis space, which I remember at the time thinking was, I certainly didn't think I was going to be in the cannabis industry six years later. And I thought, oh, the people that went on the college partying trip want to go work in cannabis classic. Uh, But the more I started researching the space at the time, cannabis was only legal in Colorado, Washington, Oregon, and Nevada. And the more I saw what a challenge it was for businesses to make hires, I really saw this this blank canvas opportunity to build a business in a brand new industry that solved a huge pain point and packed up my stuff, moved out to Colorado and 
haven't haven't looked back since. So it's definitely the business of mine that's made it uh, the furthest along and just has been an awesome ride so far in this industry and in building this business. Is there a reason that you chose Colorado over the other three uh, adult use markets at the time? Yeah, so Alaska seemed unre- unrealistic. In Oregon and Washington, I, you know, I just hadn't been, I really hadn't been to, I didn't know a lot about versus Colorado. I'm a skier. So I'd come out here to go skiing. It just, I knew a couple people that were from my school that lived in Denver. So I had, would have a couple friends. There was certainly not a business reason for choosing Colorado over the, over the other um, three places. It just, I just thought Colorado would be cool. I love it. Those are the best kind of situations. Yeah. Like, I thought it would be cool. This is where I went for it. So let's stay with those early days. I think I recall from some of the research, you were 23 years old when you started it. Yep. What were those early days like? And was there hesitation when you got started? I can only imagine the type of challenges getting started as a 23-year-old in a space as challenging as cannabis currently is. But back then, it must have been littered with even additional challenges. So take us through those early days. Yeah. So one thing to notice is that the business was called Graduana. Um, if you Google graduating, you'll see the logo, which is a graduation cap with cannabis leaf coming off the side. So it's hard to be taken seriously as a 23-year-old. I think it's really hard to be taken seriously as a 23-year-old with a company that's called Graduana. So it was hard. I mean, like I would go into these businesses and tell them that I'm Carson with Graduana. I can help you find an entry-level employee for $500. And people would laugh at me, but I, I kept going. And I think the trick is I finally got a customer. Our first customer was Open Vape. I remember the controller, I don't think he's there anymore, but his name was Oliver Nelson. And he let me help him find an, you know, an entry-level accounting person. And I bent over backwards. I would have done anything to find him this candidate. And they made the hire. And you know, Nelson said, well, you did such a great job. You really bent over backwards. So I'm going to introduce you to five more people, right? And then closed a couple of those and then bent over backwards for those people. And like, I think it goes a really long way just showing up every day and working hard and doing what you say you're going to do. But I'm not, it was certainly, it was, it was really, really hard because I, you know, I remember I would try to go to at least three networking events per week and I would get there and I would just say, I'm just going to try to introduce myself to every person here and to walk up to strangers and say, I'm Carson Humiston with Graduana. Are you hiring or do you know anyone that's hiring? A lot of people I knew I walked away from them. They started to laugh at me. So it took a lot of, it took a lot of discipline to keep going. Yeah, it wouldn't have shocked anyone if you kind of turned away, right? Because so many no's is kind of uh, disheartening. So, I mean, staying with that, as you start to progress, there had to have been a certain moment where you kind of looked in the mirror and said, this is actually working, right? Like the business is is actually starting to form. So what were those moments like? And when did you realize that what was uh, initially an idea is starting to turn into like a real, real business? Yeah, so about like six months in, I had enough business that I could hire the the first full-time person. Her name was Jordan Smith. And she actually joined banks for just $15 an hour. Um, we, I recently found, or she recently found like the email offer letter that I sent her. And I shared it with our whole team because it was like $15 an hour plus commission, you know, no health insurance, obviously no, no 401k, nothing, uh, bring your own laptop. So it's like, you know, it was really a commission job and, she and I just grinded it out for another five months. And then we had enough customers to hire our next person. And I think once we got to around four employees, we decided to rebrand because the name Graduana just wasn't really meeting what we were doing. We were getting requests for director of cultivation. So we rebranded to Vanks. Um, and really where it started to really take off was like mid-2017, 
We were throwing career fairs in a bunch of states. We had about 12 employees. We were close to doubling our revenue every month. And we were just getting so many inbounds. And it started, felt like a flywheel effect of like one customer would work with us. They would, you know, they would make an intro. We'd place someone, that employee that we placed would tell another employee in the space. So we really started to, to, to get rocking. And that's when we decided to start building out the first version of our technology platform because our idea was, look, it's going to be really hard to scale this business fully manually. So we can create a technology product that helps badge credentialed workers get connected with jobs and gigs. We'll be able to scale more effectively. So it was in the summer of 2017 that we launched banksters.com. And the it just got a ton of press. I think partially, you know, at this point I was 24. So it was like, meet the 24-year-old that built the LinkedIn for weed. And just a bunch of press really got us on the map even more. And so that helped fuel the growth. And that's when we started getting inbounds from investors who were interested in potentially investing in cannabis technology hiring platform. Um, so, so I would say to answer your question, I know I just went off a little bit there. It was like twenty mid-2017, about a year and a half in, when it started feeling like it was getting real. How'd you guys come up with the name Banks? So Banks means catch in Dutch. And, you know, I wish I had like a really cool story to go behind it. It was like, Graduan is not working. And we don't have a very big marketing budget. We went to a small-time marketing agency called Canabrand. And we said, catch, like you're catching talent. And we looked up catch in other languages and Vangst came up. And we thought, okay, if you get placed, you're a Vangster. Damn, it feels good to be a Vangster. Like that. It it works. It works. It works. It works. I, I think one Original of the original gangsters, like, you know, good. there was a lot we could do with it. And we said, great, let's go for it. And I love the name. I love what we've done with the brand. I love that it's not green hiring something, something. It's cool and unique. I love our colors. I, I really couldn't have worked out better. It's very yeah. tasteful. Yeah. And it's easy to spot, right? Walking the trade shows, it, it's it's so easy to see. It stands out. And you're right. If you were that green, you would kind of blend in. It would, it would help. Like it would not help kind of separating yourselves. And I think one of the underrated challenges that you're describing there is in the moment you're trying to scale your business internally, the industry is scaling simultaneously. So it's kind of exploding in unknown directions. And with it, you're trying to, you're this young founder building a business on top of the need. So how are you able in those moments, in those early years, staying on top of the challenges that are going on in the industry simultaneously to building your business? It's all just like such a blur. It's hard for me to exactly remember what was going through my mind in, in 2017. We really kept a really strong focus on sales. It was something we were really disciplined about because we obviously, like I mentioned, we hadn't raised capital. So if we knew how much money we needed to make every month to cover our expenses and then to hit our growth goals to hire more people. And so one thing that we just stayed super disciplined on was like, despite all the noise of, you know, building a business, bringing in new hires, you know, outgrowing offices, figuring out how we're going to get into new markets. We have to hit these numbers every month. And we would have morning meetings, afternoon meetings. And we stayed like super, super diligent about driving revenue and revenue growth. And I think that helped. I think that really helped. I think that once you take your eye off that prize and you start focusing on like a bunch of different things more than revenue, things start to, especially in the early days, derail. And so we really just focused on like, how do we get that next customer and how do we get the next customer to pay us? And we had strong discipline there. I'm not sure if that answers your question, but I think it did help us to just like stay laser focused in on one thing, the whole team. 
yeah, it's important to understand what your North Star was during those early days and helping to organize everybody internally saying like, this is the direction, this is where we're going and anything else is kind of secondary to our North Star. So right, take us to where we are today. Currently, how many locations? Wow. What states are we in and what our expectations are currently? Yeah. So fast forward, we've now raised $30 million from amazing investors. We've built out several new product lines, which I'm sure we'll talk about. We're Vanks Gigs, which is our core product, which is helping customers get connected with on-demand temporary employees is in 16 states and in five more to come this year. We have 75 employees at Vanks that work here full-time. That's like a good bird's eye view of of where the business is today. And and there's still just a lot of, as you know, there's a lot of growth ahead for for the industry. I mean, you're sitting in New York right now, and that's a market that likely will be the largest cannabis market in the world. And there's not a ton of jobs to fill there right now, just because we're still in the conditional licensing phase. But we expect that as the you know more uh, as the regulations open up and more businesses apply and open and become operational, there'll be potentially hundreds of thousands of jobs and opportunities to fill there. New Jersey's been a really exciting market for us, and you know then there's still a handful of other massive states like Florida and Texas, which have not you know um, have not opened up for adult use yet. So there's there's growth within all the markets that we're in, but there's also a huge runway for brand new markets, which is why I think this industry continues to be the most exciting industry in the world. So talk us through some of these states that come online. Is it like an instant floodgate, say, say New York, they allow rec sales January 1st or December 3rd, December 1st. So it's before 2023. Thank you. Um, is it like a huge floodgate? All of a sudden your guys' inbox is like every company that could be there is now looking for employees or is it more of a trickle effect? Carson, could you walk us through kind of how that impacts your guys' company? Yeah, so we usually try to start working with the businesses during the licensing phase. And so usually when we work with a lot of different consulting groups like Point Seven Group, Ashley, the founder, she recently moved to, to New York and she's helping a lot of companies that want to apply for a license. And so we're in touch with a lot of the people that are hoping to win a license. But you have to remember, like they may not. Yeah. So we try to start engaging with people when they're in the process of applying for a license because a big part of that application process is often their staffing plans. And so you build a relationship with 100 companies, maybe five of them win the license. And so our goal is to try to get to know people before they win the license and to be part of the application process. So it's a little bit more of a slow trickle just because we're meeting them so much. We're meeting them far beyond when they will start um, like actually hiring. Then, of course, there's the MSOs who are our largest customer base. And so if they win a license in New York, New Jersey, let's say, they'll obviously call us up right away and, and we'll start working with them. So it's it's not... It's usually you can see it coming like before just like the day that the consumers come into the market. And so I would say it's more of a slow roll than like a open the floodgates kind of situation. What about from the other side, if you're an, uh, someone seeking employment? Yeah, so like... As an example, the day that the it was all over the news that New York has legalized adult use cannabis, like we got a ton of candidates coming on banks.com and they quickly realized there's no jobs there. And <laughs> now it's been like kind of a slow trickle. So the media really impacts candidates because candidates read something about jobs in New York or, or cannabis in New York and candidates come to us. But it's it's a little bit more of a slow trickle on the candidate side too, just because it's such a long roll. And it's not like, you read in the New York Times the cannabis is legalized, and then the next day there's a job for you. Like it, it, it takes time. 
once we have jobs become available, then we start marketing to all the candidates who have come to us before or on our newsletter. We start marketing those jobs to them. So it definitely makes sense if you're in New York right now and you're interested in jobs and cannabis to come on banks.com, make a profile, read read all of our blogs about New York jobs, how to get connected with New York jobs. And then we can notify you when job becomes available. But same thing, it's a, it's a little bit of a slow trickle and like largely has to do with what people read in the news. I'm so glad you shared that story because I had a very similar experience. Someone saw the news, they reached out to me and they said, hey, I went on vanks.com. I, I I saw that there was no jobs. Like, why not? And I was like, well, you guys recognize like there's a process <laughs> here, right? Like, it's not like all of a sudden there's like a million jobs that are open just because they announced this. And even more so, I think there has to be so many more challenges because the people that are applying for these jobs, most of them are changing industries, don't have experience. So how does your team help that onboarding experience of, or qualifying candidates so when an MSO or smaller operator reaches out to your team, you can feel comfortable, you know, placing a candidate. Yeah, so we're in we're working with a couple training companies right now that we're working on partnerships with because training is such a big piece. And so cannabis retail 101 as an example, just giving candidates that baseline information about how to work in a retail dispensary, different kinds of point of sale systems, compliance, like all those skills. And so I think that's something that we have on our roadmap that is going to be a big separation for candidates that go through banks because they'll actually be able to get trained up on the industry in new markets. So I'm really excited about that to, to announce some of those in um, the fall. And they're in states that require a state badge. We help candidates go through the process of getting the badge. So an example here would be in Colorado, in order to work in the industry, you have to go to the marijuana enforcement division and actually get issued a badge. And so customers will require candidates to have that badge. So we help candidates in that process of getting the badge so that you have a badge, you meet the baseline criteria of getting the job, and the customers know that they're getting candidates who are you know, credentialed and they don't have to wait for them to go through that process. So really badging and training are two ways that we help our candidates stand out from the pack and help our clients get a more targeted pool of candidates. Yeah, it's probably so critical in the process for them also, right? Because when they're reaching out, when the employer's reaching out to your team looking for candidates, the last thing they're hoping for is to get a candidate that's got almost no experience and hasn't even started the process because sometimes that process takes a little steps, which is unnecessary or unhelpful for them in that process of kind of getting started. Yeah, and on banks.com, if a customer, let's say, posts a job, they can require badge, they can require a badge. And then when the candidate applies, they can see if the candidate has the badge. And customers can actually do specific searches. So I could search Bud Tender, Med Badge, Colorado. And I could even go as far to say I want to search for someone with Flow Hub experience, metric experience, and LeapLink experience. And we'll serve up that supply of candidates. And so really how Banks is building our moat is to have the largest supply of the credentialed candidates ready to come to your job. So the difference between posting a job on Banks versus Indeed is on Indeed, you might get 900 candidates. They might not have the badge. They might not have the training. They might not have the skills you need versus if you post on Banks, you can have these very industry-specific, deep skills. And really, that's how we believe we're going to win long-term is to own the supply of the candidate, of the cannabis candidate uh, workforce so that our customers can get exactly what they're looking for at every search. Yeah, there's, there's... It's hard to do, though. It's not... It's, oh, it's, so hard. It's not... It's not you know, I say that and it sounds so it sounds so easy, but it's 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 trickier than than people think. Oh Market, even... marketplaces are marketplaces are hard are, are hard businesses, but some of the most valuable businesses in the world, which is why we're excited about it. 
And they're a critical component to the industry, right? As the industry goes, they're going to need credentialed individuals. And the one thing that uh, a lot of these operators don't have is capital in order to make mistakes. And early on, when you're hiring in your business, I'm sure you would know, Carson, is that as you're growing your company, that first person on the bus is one of the most critical hires. And if you make that mistake or hire someone just based on you thought they had experience and it takes you down a bad path, there's compounding problems to kind of on top of that. Hiring, I mean, look, we're not immune to, even though we're a hiring company, we're not immune to hiring mistakes, and especially as we've gotten bigger. We've made some royal hiring mistakes and it, it really costs you a lot of time, a lot of, a lot of money, and it's a morale kill, right? When you bring in the wrong person, it's not just what they don't do, but it's all, it's all the things they do for your culture. And so I can't, ex- I mean, we got so lucky and with, I already mentioned Jordan as our first hire and our, really our first 20 hires shaped the way that this business uh, went. And for anyone new starting a business, it's just, it's make or break the first people that you bring onto the bus. How do you communicate that um, experience that you have in terms of building your guys, your organization when you're talking with a founder of a startup who is just a single state operator? It, how do you kind of connect with them to kind of communicate the, that the experience that you have building your company is built into the service that Banks uh, provides? Yeah, I think like, especially as I've gotten more experience with a founder, I think that in the early days, it's really finding the right culture fit and finding someone that will roll up their sleeves and do the damn work is what matters. I mean, like where we've gotten burned is where we, when we've hired people that have, you know, flashy companies on their resume, they're big executives, so to say, and they just do not understand what it takes to be in an early stage startup. I think that hard work and commitment and drive is what matters for the early employees at your company, not flashy logos, you know, long resume and like executives, so to say. That's not early day startup. And so where we've seen our clients go wrong is they bring in these like hotshot people to try to run the company. And those people haven't been in the weeds, no pun intended, in decades. And like, they wonder why it's not working out. And there's, so, so I would say that that what I tell our clients is like, listen, Jordan Smith was our first hire, $15 an hour commission equity in it to win it. And it's hard to find those people. But when you do, they're like, they're, they're, they're lifers, they're diehards, they'll follow you into a fire. And you got to find those people, not the expensive, overpaid, shiny executive. I, when you said that, I thought of the office space quote where he was asking them, like, what do you do here? And he's like, I'm a people's person. They're like, so what do you do here? Right. And he's just like a people's person. And you're right. Right. Because at the, at the end of the day, someone with Pepsi experience who had 30 years who goes to like a startup here in cannabis, they're going to face challenges they might, might not have had before recently. And if you're not an action over everything type of person, there isn't someone to do some of those roles, which is probably going to lead to you know internal struggles, but also like from a, a cash flow standpoint, probably a big a big headache. So let's talk about some of the data trends. I'm sure your team, as the industry continues to explode, is at the forefront of some of these data trends. Can you share some insights on what you're seeing from a location based or a role based growth? Yeah, so and it, it's good timing because I was just putting this report together from Q2, and Q2 our top jobs markets were Colorado, California, and Michigan. And so even though I know that in Colorado and California have, haven't had some of the best orders from a sales perspective and brands have somewhat struggled, I mean, they're still just like, that's where the most employees in the industry and the most businesses exist. We're seeing Michigan tick up very quickly. Florida has, has, I guess, not surprisingly, been such a strong medical market and they've been hiring a lot. And now this, 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 this last quarter into this quarter, New Jersey 
um, have been totally ripping. So it's a mix of the legacy market. I don't even actually wrong word, but it's not legacy markets, but the markets that have been around the longest continue to grow, continue to have the most employees, and then newer markets like Michigan, Florida, and New Jersey. As markets open up, has your team been able to uncover data trends saying that, okay, let's say New Jersey has been open up for two months now, as they get to month three, four, and five, we expect an increase in these type of roles. Is there is there opportunities there where your team's seen data trends from previous, let's call it more experienced states, uh, California and Colorado, and able to apply that to future opportunities to help those employers and say, hey, we're expecting a big increase in these type of roles in the future? Each market it has such a different dynamic, like a limp, like, you know, an example might be take an Oklahoma where it's a free for all. There's so many businesses that maybe each employ 10 people versus you take a place like New Jersey, which is a limited licensed market. And so that really dictates the kind of hiring because if you've got a thousand businesses with 10 employees, right, you've got a couple people on retail, you got a couple people in cultivation and a couple operations people versus if you have a massive cultivation facility that's uh you know has 300 people in it right it's just like it's very hard it's it, one thing that i've found to be hard about this industry is that each market is so unique and different that it's you know you can certainly compare can certainly compare two markets right you can compare two limited licensed markets and look at how those msos grow in scale you could compare you know two markets like you know, with, with with less regulations, but it's we haven't seen anything where it's like, oh, this is apples to apples, copy paste this playbook. Unfortunately, that's that's super challenging. So, is it more seasonality than it is on role challenges? On the gig side of our business, where where customers are looking to banks for our W two ready to go employees, very seasonal. So, in like summer and October, when outdoor grows are are in season, and there's outdoor harvests. We see like a big uptick. Obviously, uh, summer and Q4, like the, the like sales are higher in cannabis versus Q1. So like we always see an uplift in people needing to hire in Q3 and Q4. And we always see a slowdown in hiring in Q1. So I would say it's more seasonal and most markets have followed that trend. What about comparing the cannabis market to other job markets? Um, from those kind of trends perspective? I mean, is are you seeing the cannabis uh, industry follow uh, the same trends as like regular industries from a salary perspective in terms of adjusting for cost of living? Is that uh, kind of standard across the, the cannabis industry? Yeah, we put out an annual salary guide every year where we look at all the salaries across different markets, across different roles. So it's a super useful tool. I can send it to you so you can include it in the show notes. But we've seen cannabis continue to pay competitive with it's it's in industries that are similar. So agriculture or retail, other highly regulated spaces. We've seen cannabis continue to pay competitively. And really, when we're speaking with our customers, we say, you know, here's the other businesses that are similar to your business in the area. And here's how much they're paying. So how do we help you make sure that you're paying competitively so that candidates will accept your job, accept your gig versus someone else? And, and cannabis companies have have done that. You know, and also it's just like the industry is growing so quickly. In the beginning, no no cannabis companies offered health insurance. Now, over eighty percent of cannabis companies offer health insurance. And so, you know, it's well, it seems like a really long time for us. Like at the end of the day, this industry hasn't been around that long. And the fact that already today, eighty percent of businesses cover health insurance when five years ago ten percent did. Like the industry is making massive, um, making massive progress on the compensation side. And this is before. We even have banking or access to banks or access to loans or or and, and we're being 
taxed at insane numbers thanks to 280E. So it's like cannabis is prioritizing its people and its employees when there's not that much profit being made um, across a lot of businesses. So I think it will only get better as businesses become more efficient, become more profitable, and some of these insane regulations go away. That was perfectly said. What is one aspect of hiring cannabis that would shock most of the cannabis industry? I think that everyone thinks that there's this perfect unicorn person that can come in and save them and save their business. And at the end of the day, it's really about, of course, the person that you hire is important, but it's just as important that you like set that person up for success. So I think people would be surprised to know that great people get placed into jobs and don't work out because they weren't set up for success. And it's the company's fault, not the candidate's fault. Or, and I would say then the second thing was that maybe would surprise people is that businesses just totally hire for the wrong profile. So like to the point that I made earlier, you don't need to hire a senior executive from Pepsi. And we saw that in like 2019, 2020, we saw all these big shot executives from CPG move into cannabis. And how many of them are still here, right? Most of the people, they're not that many. Um, it didn't work out. They didn't make the money that they wanted to make. The industry moved slower than they thought. And they didn't realize how much they were going to actually have to roll up in their sleeves. So I think that people would be shocked that one, companies just completely hire for the wrong person. And two, oftentimes people don't set the person they hire up for success. So I think it's more a company's, I think it's the company's fault a lot of the time for mistakes that were made. Absolutely. So what- Banks isn't, Banks is in this category. Like all of our hiring mistakes, I take full accountability for, like we hired the wrong profile. So what can what can companies do to understanding that challenge in mind? What can companies do to recognize that challenge and then to alleviate going forward to hopefully minimize it? Get really clear with what you want this person to do. Like the best example I can give is people say, we need a VP of sales. And when you really drill in, they don't need a VP of sales. They need sales. They need people to pound the pavement and sell their product. And so they need the owner to go and hire three salespeople, the same price that they would get for that VP. And they need to manage those three salespeople to go sell. Versus if they spend the, this all this money on a VP, the VP is going to get there and say, what the F? You want me to go sell this product? I'm the VP. I need to hire 10 people. And I need Salesforce. And I need HubSpot. And I need a data analyst. I'm the VP. I need this team. And then the owner's like, but I just need sales. And it's like, yeah, you need sales, not a VP of sales. So like, I think people think I need sales. I need a VP of sales versus I need sales. I need sales reps. I need better marketing. I need partnerships. What are things that are going to actually drive me sales versus a person telling me to hire 10 more people? So I would say getting very clear on what the business needs and asking yourself like, without this, is this person or lack of this person truly what's holding me back from my growth. Uh, I think that would avoid a lot of hiring mistakes and unnecessary hiring. That's got to be so challenging for you because I, I think you're spot on with the money with that. But sometimes it's it's really tough for people to admit those mistakes. And sometimes I would assume they come back to you and say, hey, Carson, like we hired this VP of sales that you you told us to and they stink. And and then it's is it up to you like then to explain on or is it an earlier on process where you're like, hey, we need to get to the root cause of what you actually want from an employee? For that line of our business, right? We get paid... A percentage of the candidate's salary. So it would be in banks' interest to run around town and place $500,000 workers all day, every day, whether they work out or not, right? But that would be so short-sighted because then those people wouldn't work out, the company would waste a ton of money, and 
they would never come back to banks and they would maybe go out of business. So while that could be quick, good money for us, we don't take that path of trying to tell our clients to like overhire for what they need. We try to tell our clients from the get-go, like, what do you actually need? And we do full kickoff calls when people are coming to us for these like executive level roles. And we really try to dig in with them and understand like, what is the pain today? What are you trying to get as a business as a result of this person? What is this person going to do on the day-to-day to achieve the goal you're talking about? How are you going to measure this person? What does success look like three months from now? Like, through what does success look like in a year from now? I hate when people ask that question. It's like, as a year from now is a long time. What does this person need to do to get up and running and get off the ground in three months from now? And in three months, we can talk about, you know what I mean? So it's like getting super granular with like these customers and trying to help them. We have a good outline, I think. And, you know, it's turning business down sometimes. If people tell us that they want to hire this like shiny object, huge person that we know is just too, not too advanced for where their company is. Um, you know, we don't, we, we really try to be good long-term partners. And I think it's showing like, I remember GTI being with Pete Cadence, the former CEO in their office with 60 employees. And I was talking about what their hiring needs were. And like, you know, Pete and I just like, he's, he's an amazing CEO and just like mapped out exactly what they needed. We filled these low roles, you know, and now they've got 2000 employees and you sure now they have big, big hires, but they started out not, not, not that way. And I think every successful business starts small and they, build their way up to these big, big shot executives. Doesn't happen overnight. No, no. Really important. So one of the things that's impressed me most is your progressive modern leadership style. Why is that so important to the culture that you're bringing to banks? Well, that's a nice compliment. I didn't know that I, that I gave off that, um, that I gave off that vibe. I think that's important that you do that. I think you're, you're, you're outspoken about things that are important to you. And I think some people are a little more hesitant with speaking about those things. Like, for example, you wanted people to return to the office. I think if some people might have been a little more hesitant, they might say, okay, we can be a little more reserved. So I think communicating what's important to you is a direct communicator. I think that's really important in setting up your business so people know exactly where they stand. Look, I think that it's not everyone's cup of tea, maybe very direct communication. And one thing that has happened to me over the course of being an entrepreneur is I've gotten more confidence to make a decision and stick to it rather than decision by committee, right? One of the things that being a first-time founder is in the early days, I would ask for a lot of people's, you know, seek so many people's opinion and say, what do you think we should do? What do you think you should do? What do you think you should do? And there's not that there's anything wrong with that, but, but, but eventually, you know, you're the founder and CEO. You need to make a decision that you think is right and go with it. There's been nothing worse for me is when I make a decision based off of, um, what other people think. And in my gut, I know it feels wrong. And then six months down the line, it doesn't work out. And so I just made a commitment to myself actually for this year that I'm not going to make decisions that I don't 1 million percent stand behind, even if it's unpopular. So this office thing is a great example. It's super popular right now to work remotely. It's not working for certain teams on our in our business. And we are returning to the office. And if people don't like that, path, then they don't have to work here. And I'm totally okay with that. There's plenty of companies that their business runs great being remote. It doesn't work for banks. This is the decision made and this is what we're going going to. But you know, it's 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 hard. And I think that um it it, it takes some practice to uh, make these unpopular decisions and be okay with them. And I'm still, you know, learn learning as I go as well. But try to be truthful and transparent and you know do what I think is right as often I, as possible. I think that's what's most important, right? You're honest about your approach and I think people understand exactly how that goes. So 
Let's do a quick rapid fire. True or false? Your favorite cannabis podcast podcast network is Podcon X. True. True. The number one most influential book you've ever read. I would say that I really, I read it in college. It was called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And I go back and read it once a year. And it's definitely, it's definitely like very baseline stuff, but it was just like, it's super, I think it's really helped like shape just like my general mindset. So I would choose that one, but there's so many really good like business specific books that I also love reading. Hiking, swimming, climbing. Favorite one while consuming cannabis. That's scary to think about. I guess I would say hiking. I would probably fall off the mountain though. True or false, you swam from Alcatraz to San Francisco? True. True or false, your dad followed? True. State you have your eye on? State I have my eye on? Like to get into for the business? Just one that you think is underrated that you think is poised to explode? Oh, Florida. When you started your journey in the cannabis space, what did you get right? And most importantly, what did you get wrong? I got right our early team members in our early culture. I got wrong how to scale that culture. What would you have done differently? I wouldn't have tried to hire these... Everything I've been talking about in the show, I wouldn't have tried to hire all these like hotshot people with like that, frankly, were just like, you know, they looked impressive and it was cool to tell our investors we had hired them and cool to tell our team we had hired them and cool to post about on LinkedIn. But at the end of the day, they they came in and, you know, I, I don't think did much for the business. So I my, my regret is rather than like promoting from within some of these early rock stars and like making them run the company, trying to hire these like hot shots from, with, from outside um, in. 20 years from now, we will look back and say, that was barbaric in the cannabis industry. What is that? If you go to my Twitter and you scroll down, you can see an email that's some customer from Oklahoma uh, sent to one of our sales reps. He sent a very barbaric email, CEO, to one of our sales reps, and I tweeted it. So I think 20 years from now, we'll still be talking about that email. The response from the industry was swift, though. It, it seemed like everyone got behind that because everyone recognized that that was incredibly wrong and that there's no reason for something like that to exist. So yeah. at least from my perspective, I was happy to see the response as a unified approach. Yeah, so I would say people will be like, oh my God, that was barbaric. But what people will say is amazing. It's like that guy's like, you know, Leafly account got taken down. Leadmap's accounts got taken down. Like all of his accounts got taken down. You know, employees quit. I mean, like it was very much like we will not stand for this kind of behavior in cannabis. So I, I think it was like a critical moment that like, even if you're a small time business owner in Oklahoma, you can't act this way in cannabis, which is unique to, the, to a lot of other industries. Since you've been in the cannabis industry, what has been the biggest misconception? It's like a get rich quick, quick hit, get in, make a ton of money, get out. It's a long road. You need to take the time to understand the industry, understand your customers. Like you're, don't do this industry if you're not going to commit at least a decade. Before we do predictions, we ask all of our guests, if you could sum up your experience in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass on to the next generation, what would it be? Keep with it. It's a long road and there's like a lot of highs and lows. And the best thing you can do is wake up every day, you know, and and be committed to having a good day and, and making it happen. And, and like literally just sticking with it, putting one foot in front of the other for years. Well said. All right. Prediction time. 
Prediction. <laughs> the cannabis industry is set to explode over the next five years. What job role do you think cannabis companies should look to add to their team to get ahead of the industry's growth? And, and I think some people have this, but like a go-to-market person to focus on multiple new states before their before their you know the licensing has even come out. And so figuring out, okay, what is Nebraska cannabis going to look like? And if I want to build any kind of business, whether it's an ancillary business, plant touching business, like what is the defining strategy to win in that market and start thinking about it years before it comes into play. And I think especially ancillary businesses, like if you have an ancillary business, how do you win Nebraska? Because no one's in, in focusing on states that nobody's thinking about. Smart. Kellen? Um, I would say supply chain logistics, especially over the next five years is, I mean, <clears throat> we'll see if interstate commerce is ever a thing. Um, but I do think that, I mean, supply chain logistics for these small companies that are operated in fragment, fragment, fragmented markets. I mean, just look at say a large MSO that's trying to sell the same, same vape pen in 15 different States. Every single different state is going to have a different label requirement, right? So just managing that kind of inventory, um, for these larger companies, I think is going to provide significant efficiencies. And over the next five years, I think focusing on efficiencies is going to be one of the best routes to uh, profitability for these large uh, MSOs. What do you think, Brian? Yeah, that's going to be a a real critical piece. I I think I'm with Carson, though, on the strategist side. I think the industry is growing so fast. And I think that the difference between being reactive and proactive is really small. And I think in this industry, with a heavy focus on being in front of the industry changes, you can likely avoid unnecessary landmines, which are expensive and potentially critical with an industry that's as cash-strapped as ours. So hopefully things change and things open up and then positions like that can be filled faster. So Carson, for those who want to learn more about Vanks, they want to apply for jobs, specifically those on the East Coast, where can they find you? Vanks.com. They can find Vanks. You can follow Vanks on all social media. I'm on Twitter, Kay Humiston. LinkedIn. And the podcast. And of course, on the podcast, the Proud to Work in Cannabis podcast, we go live with different people that are working in the industry once a week. We have a good one dropping today. So yeah. We'll link it up on the show notes. Thanks so much for taking a lot of trade shows. We'll also be at a lot of trade shows this fall. We're going to Benzinga, MJ Unpacked, Paula Flowers, and MJ Biz and Revelry in New York. So we've got five big conferences that we're part of coming up. So if people are there, you can find our team there. Oh, nice. We'll link it all up in the show notes. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you, guys. I had a blast. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey guys, Montal here, inviting you to check out my podcast, Let's Be Blunt with Montal, where we have candid conversations about everything cannabis. We have over 250 episodes in our library and a new show drops every single Thursday. So be sure to subscribe. And if you like what you hear, make sure you leave us a review.